This is the Real Digital Transformation podcast series, empowering technology and business professionals to succeed with digital transformation. Now, here's your host, best-selling author Thomas Earl. Hi, this is Thomas Earl, and welcome to another episode of the Real Digital Transformation podcast series. Today, I have with me Joe Wheeler, best-selling author and CEO of CX Digital. Joe has written his third book dedicated to customer centricity and improving the customer experience with an emphasis on adapting to all of the changes that are occurring as a result of digital transformations and digital technology adoption. It sounds really exciting, Joe. Welcome to the show. Well, it's just uh, a pleasure to be with you, Thomas. Thanks for having me. Joe, tell us a bit about what you've authored prior to this book and how it's led now to this new title that you've released. What is the scope of it? And primarily with what you've been writing about in general, um, how does it relate to what's happening in the world out there now with the vast adoption of digital technologies? Yeah. So as you mentioned, this is my third book. The first one, uh, Thomas, was Managing the Customer Experience that I co-authored with Sean Smith back in 2002. And, uh, you know, back then, these concepts of, in fact, we trademarked the, the, the concept of a branded customer experience and this idea that, you know, you would differentiate your brand based on the experience versus your advertising claims was a new idea back then. And, and the case studies were companies like Virgin Atlantic. And so that was quite um, a great experience because, you know, Sean and I didn't even really appreciate how well that book would do, but it sold thousands and thousands of copies. I still get calls on occasion, Thomas, from university professors saying, you know, we still have this in our, in our curriculum. And then I wrote a book called man uh, called the ownership quotient with Jim Heskett and Earl Sasser from the Harvard business school back in 2008, that looked at the best practices of companies we called service profit chain leaders. So this third book is really to speak to what you just, um, just commented on, which is, you know, some things have not changed since Sean and I wrote Managing the Customer Experience, but a lot of things have. And so I decided it was time to um, really look at, in a post-COVID world, what seemed to distinguish companies that had really, you know, figured out what a digital first experience is all about and see what we could learn from them. And so um, what were your primary conclusions from having researched that and now published this? Yeah, so great question. There's three off the top of my head. Number one is companies that have, uh, and you've written extensively on this, but have really built a technology stack, um, often natively, you know, as opposed to um, building it off of legacy platforms like Lemonade, have really produced a business model, have an opportunity to create a business model that leverages digital technology uh, very differently. Um, and that is a big deal because, you know, when it comes to things like machine learning and customer experience, the thing is, it's, I don't want to say it's misunderstood, Thomas, but that is not really emphasized enough is the learning part of it. You know, what's powerful is this flywheel effect that I saw in these organizations like Spotify, and Lemonade and the others. The second thing is the culture piece. You know, the ones that have really done a great job of this understand that in a digital first world, people aren't second. You know what I mean? It's like, People are still first, but that 
the goal is to design digital uh, uh, customer experiences that leverage the best um, qualities of humans and machines in a way that exceeds expectations. And the third one is, um, you know, honestly, the reason I called it digital first is because what the way we interact with brands typically starts digitally, you know, very few people visit a store without looking at their website first in a basic way. So over the next, you know, two to three, four years, as there's this convergence of digital technology becomes more um, uh, kind of robust, we'll see that grow even more. And so if you're a startup company, um, if you're starting something up with a new venture and you um, have an understanding of this new landscape and you have the opportunities to to build your business from scratch um, for a customer base that already has an active market for which there are already significant competitors um, in that space, what can you learn from um, customer centricity as sort of a field of practice as to how you can uh, get an advantage in in a digital landscape? Like what steps would you recommend organizations take in order to um, be disruptive, uh, be more noticed, take advantage of digital innovations right now? Yeah, great question. Well, three quick observations. One is, you know, as you saw in the book, Thomas, there's the third part of it is a playbook. So part one is like, what are the drivers creating this environment that we find ours in? And then part two is the seven design principles from achieving emotional peaks across channels to linking digital assets. So the third part is helpful because it does lay out a playbook in terms of starting with, you know, make sure you're, you're solving the right problems. Like the squeaky wheel, does it necessarily always deserve the grease right away, right? So there's, there's a piece here that is making sure that you fall in love with the problem you're trying to solve more than your solution or technology. Um, a second piece, though, to your point about, you know, getting started and how do you create differentiation is, you know, what I noticed in the chapter on linking digital assets. And I think that's, I think that's a relatively new concept. Uh, the, the brand I feature there is Amazon Retail. In part, Thomas, because, you know, they've been kind of taken to, to um, task by the street in terms of, you know, their kind of um, slow growth in the, in the grocery retail industry until you understand how Amazon thinks about a market. And it's just different than other companies. One of the things they've invested in, and I think will pay off in the long run for them, is how they've linked digital assets from things like digital uh, just walkout technology to their dash guard capability uh, to a number of technologies that layer up into Amazon Web Services that put them in the center of a digital ecosystem that honestly will be very hard for competitors to imitate. So kind of long-winded answer to your question, I guess I'd, I'd say to a company that's starting up is number one is don't just A, think of your value proposition. Think about that value proposition and how it lives inside a digital ecosystem and how can you link um, your digital technology to the first party or third party digital assets. And secondly, you know, remember in, in today's day and age, the customer now controls the experience. So there's a whole uh, strategy here about how you strengthen customer commitment by providing choice and control. And because access tends to be more ubiquitous today, um, understanding how you shape that control for customers is probably a pretty important piece of advice as well. 
it sounds really interesting um when when we talk, when we think about this from a digital asset linking perspective <clears throat> um amazon is a multifaceted organization they they do all kinds of um related things they have all kinds of lines of business that are synergized and so on but for the for um the average business you know mm. let's say you want to launch an online clothing store or a, a toy store or or you have a more narrow focused uh business scope tell us about how you would apply the the concept of linking digital assets to gain a competitive advantage oh great question so uh, I guess I'd say a couple things, Thomas. One is to understand, you know, starting with your customer and kind of the journey that they'll go through and how you can, you know, apply digital technology to understand um, uh, the touch points and what customers are telling you without even, you know, filling out a survey. So using good tools to understand how customers are interfacing with your different channels. And a small company might just have a mobile app and a website. So, uh, that's a pretty achievable thing with some pretty cost-effective tools. But paying attention to kind of the customer's online behavior and, you know, when do they not convert? When do they leave things in their shopping cart that, you know, just never seem to happen and or, or convert? And secondly, um, to, to what extent are they, you know, online users versus mobile app versus maybe retail users? So there's one piece is, you know, just what are what are the digital behaviors that you see customers adopting? And are these and are these uh, aligned to the to the types of customers that you're that you're trying to serve? Um, a second thing would be, you know, I said this in a LinkedIn um, article the other day, which is become a student of behavioral science. You know, uh, one of the things that's quite interesting is when you think of choice architecture and the way you design experiences that you know reinforce good behaviors for customers in terms of not giving them choice overload. You know, make it simple for them to make good decisions. Uh, give feedback around what other users think of a certain product. Um, really understanding behavioral science in a digital first world matters so much more today than it ever did before. And then I guess a third thing around linking assets would be, you're seeing this in retail quite a bit now. Like retailers are, retailers are really understanding the power of first party data, you know, and many of them are almost becoming, you know, their own agencies in terms of being able to provide that data during a shopping experience uh, to help with conversion. So it's funny, sometimes I've co-taught workshops with a good colleague of mine from Columbia named David Rogers, and he has this great tool um, that's that helps a company, any company size, you know, if it be Amazon, to understand the data that they have already and what the value is, especially when you combine that data with third-party data that you might not have thought of before and how that can create incremental value for your customers. So those are three ideas about how you might take this idea and apply it to a, a smaller or mid-sized company, I think. So it's all about collecting customer data intelligence and then yeah. properly assessing it, understanding um, what customers are doing, collecting any feedback you can from them, and then applying that, that intelligence you gain back into improving how you operate your business and your online presence. Yeah. So we, yes. So dead on, we talk about both journey orchestration, journey orchestration, but as well as journey optimization and um, optimization gives you a chance to apply tests and learn, you know, good rapid experimentation types of practices, AB tests and things like that to see how you can 
you know, become even more precise in terms of optimizing on very specific touch points. And, you know, Thomas, we know in, in any customer experience for a dedicated segment of customers, you know, there are probably four to six, you know, important loyalty drivers that tend to predict spending and loyalty and advocacy. So if you can start up understanding what those drivers are and what are the interactions that really influence that, and then what's the right combination, you know, of human, digital, logistical type of um, uh, interactions that will exceed expectations consistently, then you're not going to go wrong. (laughs) Right. Interesting. So um, in terms of how this ties into machine learning and AI, uh, that is the focal point of so many digital businesses right now. Everybody wants to um, invest in it, adapt to it, adopt it in order to improve how they can outperform their competitors and and improve their relationships with existing uh, customers. Um, Based on your research, tell us more about what you've um, seen, uh, both in terms of the the good and the bad, because Mm. as much as it can result in all these improvements, if it's not applied correctly or if it's misused, Mm. it, of course, can take a business in the opposite direction. Uh, Share with us your um, your experiences and your, your research in that area? Yeah, good question. Well, let's take the good first. Uh, starting with the good, I mean, what I little, you know that, have you ever heard of the saying, it's not obvious to a fish it's surrounded by water? <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like when you look at companies who like the ones in the book, like Spotify and Lemonade, who are down the road, you know, they're, they're next generation in terms of many levels of of versions of their machine learning and AI platforms. Um, they're just ahead of other companies that haven't been quite as committed to this. And, and the, the part of machine learning that tends to be lost on people is the learning part. I mean, uh, th- that's on the positive side. Machines are just able to, with reinforcement learning and contextual bandits, be able to become um, much better at improving both precision and recall in terms of the types of things that can create a difference for customers. So a quick example, Lemonade, which you read about, you know, they have a, a bot, AI Maya, that will sell you insurance in about 90 seconds. And she'll ask you 13 questions. And in that 13, in those 13 questions to get you a, a correct price that's competitive and will meet your needs, she generates 1,700 data points. So only a machine could do that. You know, there isn't a single insurance agent who could possibly do that, right? So, so she can just get a, a much more precise price than, than um, in a real-time human interaction. So there's things computers do, do really well and things they don't. Um, and, but what is changing a little bit is the fact that as generative AI now, as I've said, Genie's kind of been let out of the bottle when that was introduced. Now the machine is teaching itself. So that will lead to both really positive things, but also things that, have, as you've kind of mentioned, companies need to be careful about. And, and there have been examples where, um, because the foundation models that support these <laughs> need to be accurate. <laughs> if they're not, then it creates this concept of hallucinations where, um, but the problem is it sounds so real, right, Thomas? Like it seems so authentic that you wouldn't necessarily understand that it's incorrect or there's error involved uh, by just what you see. So, so yeah, companies that are exploring generative AI specifically really need to pay attention to governance, transparency, 
and how they build these foundation models in a way that reduces or eliminates hallucinations as they start to introduce these into their processes. But I just want to say one last thing, and I'll stop after this. I hope one of the things I, tr- I said on a pr- previous um, session is, is, is for people who are using ChatGPT and these you know, tools that are very helpful for day-to-day life here, um, to not confuse what you might see in terms of error there for kind of enterprise-grade machine learning applications. Um, they're different, you know, and um, the AI, you know, the data is everything, right? Like quality data uh, or bad data creates bad outcomes, but quality data makes good outcomes. I hope that makes sense. I'm curious if you agree with that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Easy one. Yeah, um, and and so, but um, the the awareness of the possibility of a bad outcome um, is important because it can take a while before there is, um, you know, before it's revealed that you know, oh, this isn't actually, you know, like for example, the the chatbot you mentioned before. It if it if it if there's any sort of bias or if there's a misconfiguration or if there's um, something that changes in, in regulatory wise with the insurance policies that it it researches and it doesn't it's not aware of it and those types of issues um, can can result in risk. Yeah. And uh, just just a quick question in, in terms of your experience in research, um, how, what would you advise? organizations to do in order to mitigate that risk? Is it all about the upfront skill sets that they employ to put it in place? Or is it about governance? Is it about the quality of data that is brought in? Uh, what, what are your thoughts just regarding that aspect of it? Because you know a lot of organizations may not think it through as much as they should. Yeah, absolutely. And again, there's a relationship between good governance and sort of your maturity level from a technology standpoint. So, I mean, your question is full of all the right answers, which is really powerful governance and bringing in talent that understands um, both the power and, um, you know, the potential pitfalls of this technology. Um, So, you know, having the right talent to be able to do that. uh, My colleague um, from CS Associates, Arun Shashi, did a really nice article I just reposted about how CS Associates thinks about or advises customers around how to think about governance and kind of specifically around the roles that the audit, you know, that the, the HR group has, that the IT group has. So, so each department understanding their roles in terms of governance around things like gender AI is really important. Um, the other piece of this is who do you partner with? You know, there's lots of, as you know, there's lots of vendors out there um, providing technology and services around this and, you know, picking good partners that um, uh, kind of model your own company's values around transparency and data privacy and things like that probably matters a whole lot. And I guess the last thing I'd say in terms of um, is having a culture, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, that lives and breathes agile. Like, you know, what I find is when we work with clients, they'll say, yes, yeah, so we use agile. And then what you find out is they distributed the book to like the top 10 executives and only half of them read more than the introduction. So you can call something a scrum team, but if it doesn't have a burn down chart and actually can demonstrate real agile principles, it's just a chart. So 
not understanding that rapid experimentation and test and learn and these capabilities are a core competency today is kind of at your peril. So that's a, the last thing I'd say in terms of what you need to have for, uh, in terms of preparing your culture for going down this road. Having said that, I've said this live during my keynotes on this topic, you know, I don't encourage companies to stand on the sidelines. Like I think, I think that has got kind of worse consequences long-term because I mean, every day in your LinkedIn post and my LinkedIn post, you see a new company introducing some form of generative AI. I have two daughters who are musicians and I just discovered a, co- a company that'll produce, you know, a band. <laughs> so uh-huh. the world is moving quickly. And so not paying attention to this, I think is more scary than uh, the alternative. Yeah, no, I, I fully understand. I, um, before we conclude, our time's pretty much up, but I just want to ask you one quick question um, about something you reference in the book, which is designing emotional peaks across channels. Um, could you please elaborate on that? Is that related to uh, enhancing the customer experience? Is it a more strategic element of a longer customer journey? Or what is the relevance of an emotional peak in a customer uh, experience? Yeah, I appreciate the question, Thomas. So, you know, there's a a behavioral science rule called the peak end rule. I first learned about this many years ago from Richard Chase at the University of Southern California. He wrote a a seminal article in the Harvard Business Review around behavioral science and CX design. The concept is, you know, we as humans tend to uh, remember experiences as pictures, not movies. So the concept is you want to build an experience that emotionally grows over time and secondly, ends on a ends on a positive note. And we can all think of experiences where either the last thing that happened was sort of very sour or very um, good. And you tend to remember those things. Now, in the old days, and Thomas, I qualify the old days as being like two years ago. (laughs) We used to think of staging these experiences because honestly, it was not easy to do, but it was pretty straightforward to do because you could you know, typically maybe have customers using one or two channels, maybe just a retail channel or just online. But now we think of structuring experiences because because the customer's omni-channel. They want to be able to start using your mobile app and then pause it and then pick it up when they're talking to your call center agent and not having to kind of re-enter data. So now we think about how do you structure emotionally building experiences across channels and Uh, depending on the company and the situation, finishing strong, ending on a high positive note. And we've got, and the example uh, I use in the book is Lemonade for that purpose, because they have really strong emotional peaks when you um, enter a claim, uh, when you donate um, the remaining balance of your unused claims uh, dollars to the charity of your choice. Very unique business model in in an industry that has never seen anything like that before. So that's the concept behind emotional peaks. Wow, interesting. Okay, super. Well, Joe, thank you so much. Um, Before we conclude, could you please tell us a bit more about what you do at CX Digital and also if you have any other new book projects on the horizon? Well, thanks, Thomas. Yes, so CX Digital is a subsidiary of a company I co-founded with – Len Schlesinger, Jim Heskett, and Earl Sasser of the Harvard Business School called the Service Profit Chain Institute. And CX Digital focuses on 
uh, working with our clients to implement these types of digital first customer experience solutions. Uh, we have a partnership with Genesis and uh, work with their pointless platform to do this, some of the things we talked about here today. And then, um, okay, your second part of that question was? Whether you have another book project in the works. Uh, well, I have a colleague of mine in Silicon Valley who uh, has made a proposal on one. And so he and I are talking about that right now. So that's kind of exciting. I will say I'm also quite interested in um, in how the calculation of lifetime value is changing with machine learning. I think there's an opportunity for, and I've seen it with companies like, like Lemonade and Spotify, they think about lifetime value very differently because they have so much data. So there's something in there. We're doing some research right now with a couple of clients around this to see if there might be something there. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, not to be uh, mysterious about this, but... Uh, <laughs> But we'll just see where, where this one heads, and uh, and I'll be back to you. Maybe we'll have another po- uh, podcast to discuss it, Thomas. <laughs> that would be awesome. Thank you, Joe. This was very, very interesting and enlightening. And yeah, definitely, let's try to uh, connect again, especially as soon as you publish something. You know, that would be wonderful. Thank you. A pleasure to spend time with you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for listening. Follow Thomas on LinkedIn 